Every one of us has addictions that rule us, and the real trick in life is to choose addictions which are blessings and which rule us in a benevolent direction. So every one of us is just subject to our habits, our addictions. Good habits you don't call addictions generally unless it's a video game, and then that's the highest, highest praise that a review can give a good video game. It's addicting, right? When we sing Psalm 1, we're singing a psalm that says that the man who meditates on the law of God shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. And I remember as a young man having an addictive personality I remember thinking, okay, so there is something good that I can be addicted to. That was a very encouraging thought to me. So no matter how much I study and read and think and cogitate and ruminate like a cow on the law of God, it will never get boring, but it will always produce fruit. Okay? He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, His leaf will be green. He'll bear fruit. It'll never fail. And so that's the reason we proclaim the word of God from the pulpit every week is to cultivate in you an addiction to the word of God. Sometimes it's called the law of God. Sometimes it's called the Bible. Sometimes it's called scripture. Um, And I want to start out by this week I want to start out this week by saying to you that this is an essentially conservative task because what it's doing is it's cultivating in us a submission to centuries, to millennia. It's cultivating in us a submission to the apostles who were told, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And so when we go to the Bible, we're doing what we sang in Psalm 1, and it's an addiction that is absolutely beneficial. All right? It's conserving everything that Jesus commanded. Conservatism is never boring. If you want to get completely excited Give yourself to any conserving of God's truth in the world today. And it will be exciting in a way that you've tried to avoid your whole life. You know, like, I don't want my battery dead. I don't want to run out of gas. I don't want to have no milk in the refrigerator. When my bear of a husband goes to have cereal, I, you know, we go through our life trying to avoid anything exciting, right? If you conserve what the Bible says in any living way in this world, your life will be exciting. It's the great lie of our world that the person that has an exciting time is the person who conforms himself to the pattern of this world. And it's the person who has the boring life who is transformed by the renewing of his mind in the conformity to Jesus Christ. In fact, today, the woman who seizes her destiny and is the leader of men is a complete and utterly boring and vapid person. But the world thinks that it's exciting. And so yesterday I got this email. I don't know how I got it. But it's this email listing a whole bunch of television shows I should watch. And it says, women who lead men are hot. Well, yeah, if you're a perverted soul, I suppose you could come to the point where women that lead men are hot. I suppose you could come to desire a woman whose principal commendation physically is her biceps and her shoulders. I suppose that you could so pervert nature that you came to think that the epitome of hotness for a woman was a soldier. But that's so boring. The whole world does that. 
How about a woman who's feminine? Now that's hot. But they didn't think they were saying anything controversial when they told me that leading women, women leading men, was hot. They thought that they were saying something that everybody would agree, right? And that's always the way of the world. The world will tell you that by conforming yourself to the lies that are in vogue at a particular time, your life will get exciting, whereas if you conserve the truth of God and live in obedience to it, you will have a boring life. But I challenge you. Live out loud. I mean, you know, the world's into living out loud, right? Okay. Live out loud any particular truth about manhood and womanhood in the world today, and your life will get really exciting. And that's why I have the most exciting life of any of you here. And it's not because I have a harem. It's because I want to know about somebody's wedding yesterday. Was the word obey in her vows? And all of a sudden, the conversation gets exciting. (laughs) And, And they say, well, no, actually, but the preacher did mention it, did teach on it. I say, but she didn't vow to obey, right? Every single wedding in this church is exciting because every one of you invite people who are not biblical Christians to your wedding ceremonies. And we pastors get to watch everybody's face when that word is unsheathed. Who really is interesting? I mean, have you ever asked yourself this question? I remember when I first came to town, there was a man who had a PhD who had preceded me in the pulpit that I was called to. And he was a feminist. And I called him up as soon as I was called to the church, and I said, would you please give me advice? What do you think are the needs of this church? What do you think are the dangers Where are the power structures? What was discouraging? What was encouraging? Stuff like that. So we talked for a while, and then when we got done, he said, oh, he said, Tim, he said, you know, um, if I were you, I'd be careful on the issue of sexuality. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, he said, remember, you have a lot of academics and a lot of students and a lot of administrators, a lot of professors in this church. And he said, if you start teaching them about male responsibility, he said, it won't go over very well in that church. I said, really? He said, no. He said, you have to understand that, uh, you know, people aren't there anymore, right? And he's talking about Christians, mind you, in that church, right? You know what I said to him? First, I said, you know, I went to UW-Madison, and IU is tame, compared to UW-Madison. It's as conservative as you could get. Any of you believe me? Okay. And I said, second, if you spent every waking minute being browbeaten, gender egalitarian feminism, don't you think that maybe you'd find it slightly interesting one hour a week to get something different? Listen, to be a Christian is to be a conservative, not a Republican. I'm not talking about laissez-faire capitalism, not talking about democracy or representative constitution. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about God, his character, and his word. We cannot escape being conservative. There is no higher statement that could be made about a church than that there is nothing new. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, it says, God says to his people, return to the old paths. Because there will be your blessing, but you would not. Now that's pretty high commendation from God when he says, return to the old. But today, we look at the old and we say, oh, that's the blue hairs. And they probably don't know how to use an iPhone. Or they probably use an iPhone because they're so stupid. 
Everything today is youth. Everything is fashion. Everything is uh, in vogue. Everything is hip. Everything is chic. So today, churches get people entirely on the basis of, this, of, of, the, of the eyeglass frames of the pastor. I mean, I'm absolutely serious. Do you want to know the doctrine of a church? Look at the eyeglasses of the pastor. If he's a Rob Bell wannabe, it's liberal. If he looks sort of dated, it's going to be a little bit more conservative. Everything today is youth worshiping. And so everything's fashion. You remember what Chesterton said. He said all the talk of what is latest is merely a giggling excitement over fashion. And what is fashion? Fashion is a cue, a line. Fashion is a straitjacket. Fashion is so intense and so rigid and so boring that you can people, have people all over the world who tattoo their arms and pierce their noses. Now, if that isn't rigidity, I don't know what is. What do you think rigidity is if it isn't piercing yourself and, and burning your arms? Come on, come on. Be honest with me. Come on. What if... Our church said, from now on, everybody that comes in this church is going to tattoo their forehead. What do you think the newspaper would say about that? Do you think they may use the C-U-L-T word? And yet, we look at everybody who's of a certain age as they have their coming of age right, which is to pierce their nose, pierce their ear, and tattoo themselves, and we say, isn't that interesting? Now, you're wondering, what does this have to do with anything, right? I'm much better at my introductions than I am my conclusions, okay? Trust me, it has something to do with it. All right, let's, let's read our scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. This is the word of God, and it is temporarily true, parenthetically true, in some ways true. The, 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 the meaning behind the words, true? Yeah. The words, true? It's absolutely true. And here's what it says. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now, now see, is that conservative or isn't it? Huh? That's about as intensely conservative as you can be. I receive from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. And so this is the Apostle Paul saying, now you remember, I already delivered to you. Past tense, I have received the word. That's also I delivered unto you. So he's already given these words of institution to the Corinthians. He's going over them again. You see that from the text. All right, And he's saying that he got them from the Lord. I received from the Lord. Now, what does he mean by I received from the Lord? What he means is that this is something that rests on the authority of Jesus Christ. This is not something I made up. This is not something that the apostles made up. Now, does this mean that Jesus actually directly spoke to Paul and gave him these words? I don't think so. It could be. 
During the time he was in Arabia and Damascus, away from Jerusalem, away from the other apostles, remember he made that point in Galatians. This may have been something that God specifically told him. I don't think so. I think that there's such a close identification with the disciples, with their Lord, and with what they taught, that the Apostle Paul, without even making a distinction, I receive from the Lord. All right? So, for instance, we read in Acts 2 that, the, that it says they were devoted to, and the first devotion of the early church, there are four of them, they were devoted to, number one is, the teaching of the apostles. Why were they devoted to the teaching of the apostles? Well, because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And so if Jesus taught everything we have in the scriptures and so much else that the pages of the world could not contain everything he taught, and then he said to them before he ascended to heaven, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and then we see that the first thing said about the New Testament church is they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. And then the apostle Paul says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. You see, the line of continuity is very direct, right? It is the Lord who speaks today when I read 1 Corinthians 11 to you as the words of institution. I have received from the Lord that which also I now deliver to you. Okay? Conservative. We have nothing new to say. It's boring, all the new stuff, because it's in lockstep conformity to Satan, who is the ruler of this present world. But we know that Jesus Christ, as my brother preached so clearly a couple, we know that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. And so when we live under the authority of Jesus Christ, we're no longer conformed to the pattern of this evil world. That's how Phillips translates that in Romans, right? You know, it's like a plastics factory. If you've ever worked for an hour in a plastics factory, you realize what Satan produces. Now, I've worked in a plastics factory, several of them. And one of them was this place where there was this, like, extrusion or extraction machine. It was huge, right? And it had something go in, chemicals, I don't know what. And then out of the end came, like, if I remember correctly, waste baskets. And I stood there at the end of the machine, and nothing ever changed except I took my trimmer and I trimmed off the end of the wastebasket and then stacked it. How many times I trimmed an hour, what the color of the wastebaskets, what they were made of and where they were going, nothing changed. Okay? It was awful. I've had a lot of jobs. And that is the lowest one other than working as a, uh, as a dishwasher in a pancake house. That one only lasted, I think, one night. <laughs> that was even worse. And so the machine, and you got a 20-minute lunch. And in the lunchroom were people who had spent 30 years at that factory. And that was hell. It was awful. It wasn't as awful for me to do it as it was for me to think about the way their life had been spent. Now, I don't deny that factories are good things and that our lives are built on people that have very boring jobs, right? And I don't think that I have a privilege to not having a boring job, but I would vastly prefer doing what I did for several years, which is to clean poop out of horse stalls, than to do that. Because at least some horses had you on your toes, lest they would kick you 
And that is a pleasure in life compared to a plastics factory. Okay? Now listen. The Lord Jesus says, be not conformed to this world. This world has its entire goal of you being the chemicals that go into that machine. And they produce people who are pierced, people who are tattooed, and people who are brash women. Do you understand me? And there's nothing interesting about it. Men who are irresponsible and spend their lives looking at pornography and playing computer games. It is completely boring. It's utterly, utterly boring. Okay? And so when we give ourselves to the pattern of God, when we are, instead of being conformed to this, transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, then we learn to test and to approve the things that God proves of. And then our lives get exciting. Are you with me? Don't believe the lies. The mall is the most boring place in Bloomington other than Assembly Hall. And certainly the sociology department. There's not an independent thought in the entire department. I have received that which also I delivered unto you. I have received what I delivered. I have received what I have delivered. Do you know that there should be no higher calling for your pastors, your elders, your Titus two women, the older women who teach the younger women, than that they have received from the Lord that which they faithfully, meticulously pass on to you? Right? Right? And you all think I'm boring, right? But I tell you I'm not. Conversations with somebody who is a conservative of God's creation order are fascinating because the signatures of the creation order are everywhere from hair to clothing to longevity of marriage to the liturgy of a wedding ceremony, to who works where, when, and how. To who raises the children. To whether raising the children is something you offload to ignorant women who can't have a profession. <laughs> now there's a thought. Where did that come from? None of you were thinking that. Where did that come from my mind? Well, I listen to the conformity of this world very closely. And I realize this world looks at child-rearing as so demeaning that it should be given to stupid women. And you say, well, that's chauvinist. And I say, okay, I didn't mean stupid, I meant undegreed. And you say, well, that's not the same thing. And I say, well, you try to tell that to them. Why are daycares always run by people with no degrees? And you say, oh no, they have to have a degree to be certified. I say, well, yeah, a degree in propaganda. <laughs> How about if we make a rule that from now on, people who run daycare centers have to believe in God's creation order? How about if we ask Governor Pence to pass that as a law? They have to have a certification in child care, whatever, and they must agree that the husband is to be responsible for his wife and his wife is to submit to him. Otherwise, they can't raise our children because our children will be perverted. You see, isn't orthodoxy fascinating? Who, who but a Christian could ever think such an awful thought? And, and this morning we have a man that works with the governor. I think we should ask him to see if he can get that into our code.
I have received from the Lord that which also I passed unto you. In other words, the Apostle Paul was saying, I haven't altered it. It's not my authority. It's not my idea. I got it from the Lord, and I'm passing it on to you. Right? Now, I ask you, what is more foundational in life then whether or not you're conformed to the world or conformed to God, is there anything that's more foundational? And so, blessed is the man that walks not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffer. Can't you imagine me going up to the assembly in Indianapolis and, and, and proposing child care workers will from now on publicly vow to uphold God's creation order given prior to the fall in the state of perfection. I think a lot of scoffing would happen. Don't you think so? Blessed is a man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither. All my raspberries, I didn't cut off the old canes, and so they're all curling in, and his leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Listen, if you want to read a book on this, read G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy and get it out of your brain that we're supposed to be creative when it comes to eternal things and what this life means. We are to be conservative. And it is the job of our pastors, of our elders, of our older Titus II women to pass on intact what they have received from the Lord. There is no higher calling for a leader in the church. There's none. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul, in the pastoral epistles, says this. He says, Second Timothy 1, 13 and 14, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, retain, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 2, 1-3. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also? The Apostle Paul says, I have received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you. Okay? Orthodoxy is not boring. What's boring is heterodoxy and heresy. Hath God truly said? Yawn. If I want to explain our church to people, I say to them that this is a church where every single thing we teach and do is completely old. So old that any father or mother of the church in past centuries would come in here and would think we had failed by not being specific and hard-headed enough. In other words, the rhetoric, in other words, the, the illustrations and the intensity of the application, what we do here is tame compared to previous centuries. And I am a monster to you because in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is a monster. 
All I am across church history is a one-eyed man who's a wuss. This is true. And if you don't believe me, you read any of the dead men. And if you don't want to, forget the doctrine. Just look at the words and illustrations and, that they use. Calvin is not known in history to be a Luther. Calvin's known to be a calm and tame lawyer who systematized. And Luther is the man that had so many words for dreck that at an academic theological conference, there was a paper given in front of David Wagner once, and the whole paper was Luther's theological use of the word dreck. <laughs> Not Calvin, but this is what Calvin says on this text. Are you with me? He says this. Hold on. Okay, this is on uh, this verse. This passage ought to be carefully studied, for it shows that the only remedy for removing and correcting corruptions is to get back to the unadulterated institution of God. All right? The only remedy for corruptions. Now, I ask you, how many pulpits in the country today would you hear any talk of remedying anything? Let alone remedying corruptions. Be honest. And then he goes on. He says... The scribes made reference to custom and also to the concession which Moses allowed, but he himself, and then he says, when we do this today, speaking of remedying corruptions, he says, when we do this today, the papists, now, papists means Roman Catholic, and I think I'll just insert Roman Catholic so that you understand that that's what he's talking about. You know, the, the papists, those under the pope, papists, all right? When we do this today, the papists make loud protests that we're tampering with and spoiling everything. We make it quite clear that it is not just, and he's speaking of the Mass, the Lord's Supper is celebrated by the Papists, the Roman Catholics. We make it clear that it is not just that they have departed from the primary institution of our Lord in one way only, but that they have corrupted it in a thousand ways. They have corrupted it in a thousand ways. This is how Calvin, the calm reformer, wrote. All right? Nothing is more obvious than that their mass is poles apart from the Holy Supper of our Lord. That's North Pole, South Pole, poles apart, okay? I go a step further. We point out that it is swarming with wicked abominations. Swarming. You, you, you ever seen a, 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 a swarm of bees? <laughs> It is swarming with wicked abominations. It therefore stands in need of correction. Our demand is this. Our demand is this. Now you know why I say that as I work to conserve, I am a wuss, my rhetoric is calm, and all previous generations of Christians would look at me as compromised by my lassitudinous age. Not latitudinous, lassit. As in sort of uh, unhinged and kind of soft and kind of breathy and kind of hot airy and lassitude. It's, it's like what leads to getting drunk. All right? The world today wants to conform us. It wants to conform us. Because if the world conforms us to the pattern of this wicked world, we will not be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so you have to repent of your desire to giggle about fashion. You have to cultivate an ignorance of fashion. You have to look at the names that you give your children and ask, 
what significance those names have. And then you have to decide whether you want to use the most popular name that everybody's using at that particular time. You know, there are statistics about this. Mary Lee and I thought we were so hip when we named our oldest Heather. 20 years later, we realized that every single Tom, Dick, and Harry in the country was naming their child Heather at the time we did it. Names, clothing, tattoos, piercings, colors. You know, that they have institutes to decide what the hip color is going to be next year, and it's a way of selling more paint, having women change their clothing. How about width of lapels? When I got up this morning, I decided how, what I would dress today. That's why I want to wear a robe, but nobody will ever let me wear a robe in this church. So I keep having to decide, and I, I, I love being able to move decisions from the forthcoming to the once-and-done category, okay? It's the principal utility in dying. You're done, all right? And so I decided between two shirts. Now, you know that I wear this shirt all the time, right? But I actually have six of them, okay? The reason I wear this shirt is that my father wore this shirt, and every time I see this shirt, my love for my father, every single time. I still miss him. So anyhow, this is a shirt that I got years ago. I don't know how many times this has been dry cleaned. And now it's getting to the point that you see the white. Well, you can see it on this one. See it? See the white? Maybe you can't see it. But anyhow, it's white. It's white because I've worn it so many times. It's been washed so many times. And I remembered this morning William Bentley Ball, who was the man that argued Wisconsin versus Yoder. And he was a friend. Uh, my, I, I hope I was his friend. He was an acquaintance, but I knew him. And I spent time with him. Wonderful Orthodox Roman Catholic man and constitutional attorney. And the thing I remember about William Bentley Ball was that wherever he went, whatever company he was in, he wore a navy blue blazer. And that navy blue blazer was more threadbare than this shirt. And do you think that it's accidental that that man who fought for the liberty of the Amish in the state of Wisconsin to not have their children brainwashed in our public school system in one you think it's accidental that he had absolutely no style in his clothing and that he wore his navy blue blazer until it was threadbare? And so who's exciting today? I'll tell you, William Bentley Ball was one exciting man. And of course he was absolutely at the center of the anti-abortion movement of this country. Now that's exciting, even without Ben Carell. Come on, laugh. That's pretty funny. I love Ben. Orthodoxy is a conservative work and the highest thing that can be said about our pastor's college, about our elders and pastors, and about the older women of this church is that they have nothing new to say. But rather, they have received from the Lord that which also they deliver to you. Right? G.K. Chesterton said something that when I read it when I was about 22, I've never forgotten it. And it was that all true Democrats object to a man being excluded from the electoral process by virtue of race or creed or religion. The traditionalist objects to them being excluded simply because they're dead. Tradition 
is the democracy of the dead. And my life changed. And I went from majoring in English literature to majoring in history and starting in with Copleston's History of Philosophy. Because I felt like history had something to say to me. And the first class period I had gone to English literature, because what does an editor and author's son do? But he studies English literature, right? So I had taken this class called Melville, Twain, and Hawthorne, right? The first class I went in and found I was probably the only undergraduate there, and that all the other guys were graduate students. It was the chairman of the English department, Lenahan, at UW-Madison, and they all had briefcases. I had a backpack, and their briefcases were meticulously there was just a round table, and, and in their briefcases were slide rules and, and calculators and earmuffs and galoshes, and, and, and I had long hair and a pierced ear, and I was so avant-garde, you know, and all these graduate students were like this. Then the discussion started. We started with Twain, and the discussion that first period was the messianic imagery of Mark Twain. And I just, the whole period, fantasized about Mark Twain walking into that discussion. (laughs) And I think he would have lit an M80 (laughs) under it. (laughs) And so that, I never went back. I just couldn't, I just couldn't abide with it, up with which I could not abide. And then I walked into this course where they were studying the Waldensians and how they preached in the vernacular. And they were back in the 12th century. And I heard my father as we studied history. I heard my father-in-law, and then I went up to the organic goat farm where Peter was, and Peter told me that his name was Peter Waldo Taylor. And that was the name of the head of the Waldensians, Peter Walter. They were called heretics by the Roman Catholic Church. They were centuries before the Reformation. And I thought, I'm nothing new. And that was a new thought to me. And I fell in love with it. And now I tell you today that you, as a Christian who loves the Word of God, you today receive from the Lord through the Apostle Paul and through Stephen, And through Eleanor. Do you understand? And now it's your job to pass it on. Okay? And your mothers and your fathers are those who have exhorted you from the word of God. They are not your physical parents. Do you understand me? That's why Jesus said you must hate your father, your mother, your husband, your wife, your children. Because we're always being parsed to choose the relationships of this world over the relationship of God. Don't ever lose track of that ball. Keep your eye on that one. And so today, you and I stand in a long train of those who have lived exciting lives because they have received of the Lord that which also they're passing on to their spiritual children. Are you with me? Now, one other thing, and I'll stop. What does the Apostle Paul pass on here? Well, it's very interesting. The Apostle Paul is writing what he's writing about the Lord's Supper because there have been distinctions, divisions, delineations within the church that ought not to be there. And you remember when we had our sermon a couple months ago that the distinction, the delineation, the division in the church that should not be there was between the rich and the poor. Because the rich were getting drunk. Remember this. That's the reason we're in the midst of this section. Now, where were they getting drunk? Were they getting drunk at the Lord's table or were they getting drunk at the agape feast before? You know that they'd already been eating and drinking in the upper room before Jesus gave the words of institution, right? You know that, right? And so it's, it's hard to pin down particular texts as to what's going on. We don't really know whether the drunkenness was happening right there at the potluck before they stopped the potluck and actually give the words of institution. 
okay? But what we do know is that the reason he is passing on to us what he received of the Lord, the reason he's correcting them is that there were divisions, distinctions, delineations in the church that were a complete violation of the Lord's Supper, right? We ought never to discriminate between the rich and the poor in the house of God. You know how everybody always complains about the church is the most segregated place in America today? You know, everybody moans and groans about this, right? You all with me? Oh, it's so sad we don't have blacks and whites together. The church is the most segregated place in America today. You know how you've all heard this, right? Right? Well, yeah, that's what they say. I'll just tell you that. I was at a Promise Keepers for Pastors, and that was the only truth that came out in that Promise Keepers for Pastors. But you know, what's interesting is the segregation they have their eye on is the pattern of this wicked world. The segregation this wicked world thinks is the significant one. But you know, it is true. The church is the most segregated. But the segregation is not black and white. The segregation is educated and uneducated. Now, there you have a real segregation. (laughs) Can you imagine me preaching this sermon in a Pentecostal church? That would be interesting. And can you imagine a Pentecostal preacher, a Trinitarian one, preaching in our pulpit? You see, Satan's always taking our eye off the ball. The real division in Bloomington is not white and black and Asian and and Howley. The real division is between the east and the west side. And ne'er the twain shall meet, except maybe if somebody on the east side is really humble in Walmart. Or maybe Aldi, if they're desperate. For 17 years we lived on these, never locked our door except one time when there was somebody in our church who was so furious I was afraid for my life. And that night I locked the door before I went to bed. But before we moved into our house while it was being built, three times we had vandalism and or burglary. Listen, the division that the world wants you to be concerned about is always a false division. Because if the church, if the world wants to heal the division, it will take your eye off the ball because the world is never a force for reform that has anything to do with God. Okay? The world is not godly. So if the pages of the New York Times are pushing you to repent of your racism, I trust me, your eye's off the ball. And that's why I tell people all the time, my father was taking a stand among evangelicals against racism in the 50s. And he would not lower himself to do it today. He'd be off and running. Something that the Holy Spirit had made him peculiar about. And I think maybe he might be trying to get us today to uh, repent of our educationalism in the Reformed world that today all we care about are degrees and being able to put them in front and behind our names. And that that's a distinction that should never corrupt the church, ever. (laughs) Right? Right? Now I have my glasses on and I can see you. I mean... How demeaning to the church of Jesus Christ to have some able to get drunk and the others not to have anything to eat or drink. How demeaning to the church to have some people that you have to address as doctor and other people that you say, idiot face. Daycare worker. Come on, guys. Keep your eye on the ball. Okay, so all of us are prepared 
to repent of the divisions that are in the church that are contrary to the unity of the household of God, right? And now I tell you that the whole purpose of the sacraments is to divide. And I want you to fix this in your brain. Sacraments, in their very nature, their purpose is to divide. And so now you're all softened up to unite, right? To not let money, to not let degrees, to not let status, to not let whichever side of Bloomington you live on to divide you, right? We're all there, right? And now I tell you that the whole point of sacraments is to divide. And so now you realize that if we will divide as a church over wine versus grape juice, if we'll divide over gluten versus non-gluten, if we'll divide over east versus west side, divide over the relative weight given to degrees, okay, that it takes our eye off the ball. Because the real division is supposed to be what? The real division is supposed to be between those who have faith in Jesus Christ and those who do not. And I tell you that that distinction is universally hated by the church in America today because at the core of postmodernism is a hatred for distinctions that matter. It hates sexuality. And is there a more foundational distinction that God has created in us than sexuality? (laughs) No. And so when it comes into the church, what do we do? Oh, we just fall all over ourselves trying to not make anybody feel unwelcome. And yet the whole point of a sacrament is not just to make you feel unwelcome, but to make your body marked in such a way that it's clear whether you're in or out. That's the purpose of a sacrament. A sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible spiritual reality. God wasn't surprised to find sacraments had to do with who did and didn't go under the water, who does and doesn't eat and drink, God ordains some of the means of grace to have at their heart physicality that divides man. Did you realize that? The difference between my preaching and baptism in the Lord's Supper is that my preaching is a sacrament. And so it doesn't divide. You say, oh yeah, it does. You should hear my conversation with my wife after a sermon Sunday morning. I say, well, it divides, but it's not visible. You say, well, it's audible in our home. I say, yeah, but it's not of the essence of preaching. And you say, well, but the Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between boy. Yeah, but come on, listen to me. Division is not of the essence of preaching. It's the Holy Spirit's application of preaching that divides. But division is of the essence of the sacraments. And the minute the sacraments are willy-nilly, the minute the sacraments become a way of me showing the largesse of my noblesse oblige, the minute the sacraments become my way of showing you that I'm just an aw shucks guy, that I'm just so tolerant and so open, The sacraments are as meaningless to us as they were under the papists at the time of Calvin. Do you understand me? The sacraments are a gift of God to the church to divide. Okay? You want to know one of the reasons I'm opposed to children taking communion? I'm opposed to it because it removes any point at which the family of God is ever divided. If you believe in infant baptism as I do, at least when the time comes for that child to confess his or her faith, the elders with a non-Pado communion church have the ability of saying no to that child, that they do not recognize true Christian faith, that that child is not able to discern the body and blood of our Lord, a whole host of things. And our elders are known because 
for their faithfulness because they do regularly tell children of this church, no, we don't believe yet that your confession of faith is of such a maturity and integrity that you yourself are confessing Jesus Christ. Whereas in a Pado communion church, as soon as they're able, they just take the Lord's Supper. Are you with me? Sacraments are intended to divide. They show who is in and who is out. And you say, well, yeah, but Jesus talked about circumcised hearts. And so you can't say that just because the physical thing is done that the heart is there. And I say, yeah, that's absolutely right. They're signs and seals. They, are not, uh, they don't operate by virtue of themselves. Faith must precede them. True faith. But we're always faulty in the decisions we make. And so you say, well, now, what does this mean for infant baptism? And I say, I have an answer for that. But I want to drive you back to the central point. And the central point is the whole point of a sacrament is to divide. And that's why it's physical. And so the two things this morning are, number one, we're conservative, and it's exciting. And that's why you can give yourself whole hog to the law of God without ever having to worry about it. It'll never fail you, and your life will be the most exciting life of anybody you've ever known if you live for the law of God. Not if you think that that earns you heaven. It doesn't. But because you have been given heaven, your, your joy is the character of heaven, and that's the law of God. That's number one, conservative, and number two, dividing. Not the divisions the world wants you to give in to, but yes, the divisions the world doesn't want you to give in to. (laughs) Everything the world does, you want to do the opposite. Not to be contrary, but to be a contrarian. (laughs) Because what is holiness other than contrarianness? And so I'll end with this. This is what the Apostle Paul commands us in the name of God. Okay? He says this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, and that includes cistern, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, that's why education is so important to Christians. God is the God of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I would add, very, very exciting. Not boring at all. Okay? Okay? Say yes. Thank you. I needed that. Let's pray. Oh, Father. As I look around this sanctuary and think of Satan's attacks on so many here, trying to get them to conform to this evil world. I pray, Father, that through the preaching of your word by this sinner and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit softening our hearts so that we see the battle as it really is and not as Satan tries to make it out to be, that you will enable us to stand against the conformity of this world and that you will make us alive so that we may be living sacrifices 
so that we may be transformed by the renewing of our minds and able to know the perfect will of God. Father, would you please do this for us? Because you have promised it, because you have commanded it, we now ask it. Would you please give us what you command? In Jesus' name, amen.